Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Marilyn Thompson. And I'm Patty Vest. After a brief hiatus, we're restarting SageCast with new guests, a new look, and a new host. Welcome, Marilyn. Thanks, Patty. Happy to be here. This season on SageCast, we're talking with a variety of Pomona College faculty about their field of research and teaching and how they came to love it. Today, we're talking with economist Pierangelo de Pache, chair of the Department of Economics at Pomona College, whose work focuses on macroeconomics and finance. Welcome, Pierangelo. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. You grew up in Italy, which is one of the countries that people most want to visit in the world. Tell us about your roots. And also, I just have to ask, did you grow up in the best pasta and pizza in the world? <laughs> Thank you for your question, Marilyn. Um, I was born in 1978, so quite a few years ago, uh, in the southern part of Italy, in a city called Taranto. Uh, Taranto is a city along the seaside in the uh, heel of the boot. Uh, mm. And um, I spent all my youth there. Uh, I went to uh, school, high school. And when I turned 18, uh, I moved to Milan in the northern part of Italy. Uh, in Milan, uh, I spent my uh, college years. I went to college, Bocconi University. Uh, and then towards the end of my journey uh, as an undergraduate student, I decided that I wanted to uh, experience something different in my life. First of all, I knew that I wanted to keep studying, uh, to keep studying economics, mathematics, and statistics. And I thought that uh, one of the best opportunities that I could create for myself was to try and experience abroad. That's why I applied for PhD programs in the United States. Uh, United States are the best country to study uh, in the world. Uh, and uh, one year later, uh, I landed in Baltimore, uh, which is where uh, I did my PhD uh, at the Johns Hopkins Universities. I spent six years of my life there. Uh, and then uh, when I graduated, uh, I found my first permanent job, uh, which is the one that I currently have here uh, at Pomona. Pierangelo, when was that? Do you remember that first? Like economics is really interesting to me. What do you remember? What what sparked that? Absolutely, yeah. Um, well, when I was a high school student, I didn't know anything about economics. I had no idea uh, what it would be like. Uh, but this is when you start applying for colleges and universities. Mm -hmm. And in Italy, uh, things are very different, uh, talking about the educational system. Mm -hmm. uh, when you choose your college or university, you also have to choose the subject, the discipline right. that you want to study. Mm -hmm. uh, and you start studying that discipline, that subject from day one until right. you graduate. So it's a big choice because if you're wrong, <laughs> then you have to start <laughs> yeah. all over again yeah. somewhere else. Uh, so I started thinking about possible paths in my life, mm -hmm. uh, things that I would like. Uh, I knew that I loved uh, mathematics. Uh, I had very limited exposure to statistics, mm -hmm. but it's something that uh, was uh, always interesting to me. Uh, and I didn't really know uh, if I wanted to study uh, theoretical aspects of these disciplines or more applied ones. Mm -hmm. uh, something that I definitely knew was that I wanted to leave my town. Uh, I wanted to go to Milan, mm -hmm. uh, which is probably the most international European city uh, in Italy. Oh. Uh, and I want to experience that kind of uh, lifestyle, uh, mm -hmm. to live in a big city like that. Uh, Bocconi University happens to be Milan. And Bocconi has the reputation to be uh, one of the best schools in the world, not mm -hmm. just in Italy or in Europe. And I knew that I wanted to go there. Mm -hmm. uh, so what to study? Uh, I didn't know about economics, as I said. So I went there convinced that I would study uh, business. 
and oh. that one day I would become, uh, I don't know, a manager mm-hmm. in some big international company. That was the initial idea. Uh, at the beginning of my studies at Bocconi University, uh, for three semesters, uh, all students had to study more or less the same things at the intersection between economics and business. And it was during the first three semesters of my life uh, at Bocconi University that something sparkled. Uh, I realized that economics, for me, uh, was the way to go, uh, the thing that I was most interested in. Uh, and uh, I decided to choose economics uh, during those months. Uh, so as a second-year college student, I made a specific choice. I chose my major, mm-hmm. uh, if you will, uh, and that's how I kept studying that. And what was so interesting about economics in those three semesters that the made quant- you change your mind? The quantitative aspect of economics, uh, even what I do now, uh, is uh, basically and uh, uh, primarily quantitative, uh, statistics, mathematics applied on data. And I could see that applied every day in whatever I was studying mm-hmm. uh, in the economics discipline. So that was the sparkle. Do you think it's an advantage to have studied on two different continents? Yes, I think so. Um, I have a, a deep, I would say, uh, European uh, experience. Uh, I consider myself uh, European uh, to begin with, and then American, uh, even if I spent 20 years of my life uh, on this side uh, of the ocean. Uh, I could, I could see and I could appreciate uh, over these uh, 26, 27 years of higher education and uh, working uh, in higher education, uh, the two aspects, the two sides of uh, higher education across uh, the world, uh, the European model and the American model. Uh, I appreciate uh, the positive aspects of the European model and I learn how to appreciate the positive aspects of the American one. Uh, they're completely different systems. Uh, what I would do you think say, the key differences are? Yeah, uh, when it comes to education, when it comes to uh, um, how well students can study a specific discipline or subject uh, in these two uh, sides of the world, uh, the differences are profound. Uh, I would say that the average uh, European student uh, is more prepared uh, than the average uh, American student when it comes to college years. Uh, what they can study is much deeper uh, over there, on average. Uh, At the same time, uh, however, I must say the European system, and the Italian one in particular, doesn't possess the flexibility uh, that the American system has. Uh, In the American system, it is really possible to identify talent and to make sure that that talent can excel, Hmm. something that is much more complicated in Europe uh, because there are some rigid structures uh, and guidelines that need to be respected. Hmm. Uh, Here in the States, we can uh, go around them uh, and make sure that if you can identify talent in one of your students, you can uh, lead them uh, to excel and get better. Uh, Just a simple example. An undergraduate student here, uh, not just in the consortium, but uh, I I would say in any college or university in the United States, uh, if they're good enough, they would be allowed to take classes from a PhD program. Uh, something that is not possible because of all the bureaucracy in Italy and in Europe, at least in general. <laughs> what prevents them? Uh, I don't know, because uh, I haven't worked in the European system, so I'm not completely sure about uh, uh, the legal aspects that prevent uh, an undergraduate student from taking a uh, class in a PhD program or a master program. Uh, but all I know is that it's very hard to do. 
Uh, to some extent, uh, I was uh, a small exception uh, when I was an undergraduate student. Uh, before graduating, I started attending an Italian master's program. Uh, mm. But it was not easy to convince the faculty administration that I was ready for that. <laughs> Interesting. Piangelo, let's go into your um, areas of expertise. What are some of the things that you research and that, that you pursue? So I consider myself an applied economist. Uh, my interests have always been at the intersection between uh, empirical macroeconomics and empirical finance. Uh, at the beginning of my career, I was interested in international finance and international macroeconomic topics. Uh, lately, I've been more interested in financial markets and their instabilities. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why uh, cryptocurrencies has been uh, one of the main topics that I've studied over the last four or five years. Economics is sometimes called the dismal science. How did it get that reputation? You're anything but dismal. How did the field get that reputation? Um, I'm not sure about the roots of uh, <laughs> this uh, expression, why exactly economics is uh, defined that way. It's probably because um, what we study is very dry. Uh, <laughs> the typical economist is also a very dry person, uh, teaching-wise. And I get that a lot from my students, even here at Pomona. Um, I think that more seriously, uh, the reason why economics is called that way is because uh, we deal with matters uh, that are very essential, very narrow, uh, sometimes uh, sad to describe. Uh, mm -hmm. We talk about uh, matters concerning life and death, uh, mm -hmm. human behaviors, uh, the good behaviors and the bad behaviors. Uh, mm -hmm. And typically economists are not afraid uh, to deal with these matters in the research or even publicly. Uh, so maybe that's why we got this kind of reputation and the subject is called this way. I'm not really sure, but uh, that's probably a good, a good guess. Back to your research. Um, one of your areas of expertise is or interest rates. Is that correct? You had some experience at a, a deferral reserve bank in St. Louis. Can you tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about that and then two-part question. Um, your thoughts on the rapid rise of interest rates currently. Okay. Um, my experience uh, in the Federal Reserve System uh, spans quite a few years. Um, I uh, visited the St. Louis Fed uh, for the first time in the summer of 2007. Uh, I was still a, a PhD student at the Johns Hopkins University, and uh, uh, I was awarded a scholarship uh, to go there mm -hmm. uh, to the bank visit them for one uh, summer and keep working on my research uh, under the supervision of the guidance and the advice of their economists. Uh, my second experience in the Federal Reserve System was actually at the Board of Governors uh, uh, in DC, uh, one summer uh, later mm -hmm. uh, in 2008. Um, and uh, interestingly, um, I was able during my time uh, in the Federal Reserve System uh, to witness firsthand uh, the beginning of the financial crisis. Wow. Uh, in 2007, uh, if you can remember, yeah. it was when uh, we had the first turmoils uh, in the mortgage markets. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, in 2008, uh, basically I remember that the day I was doing orientation uh, with HR <laughs> uh, at uh, the Federal Reserve Bank in DC, uh, this is the day when Lehman Brothers uh, went bankrupt, wow. uh, and I could see a lot of agitation what in the building. <laughs> it was the beginning of September, Whoa. and it was quite interesting to see uh, uh, all the big guys 
coming into the Fed to talk with Ben Bernanke uh, about what to do. <laughs> so interesting times. Uh, as far as your second question is concerned about interest rates and what I think about them, uh, well, um, the situation is uh, at least uh, in principle very easy to describe. Uh, you're talking about rising interest rates, not just in the United States, uh, but a little bit everywhere in the world, yeah. Europe in particular. Yeah. Uh, well, over the last two and three or three years, we have fortunately experienced some uh, major events, mm -hmm. uh, pandemic, mm -hmm. uh, with the disruption on uh, the supply chain uh, that has mm -hmm. contracted supply all over the world. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, recently, starting from February, in Europe, we have a war uh, that, again, is affecting the supply chain mm -hmm. and a lot of other aspects of, of the economy, the global economy. Um, what we've been observing uh, is because of, as a consequence of these two major events, is a contraction in supply, uh, also uh, an increase uh, in the inflationary pressure uh, on the economy because yeah. of this contraction in supply. Now, the Fed or central banks, I'm talking also about the ECB in, in, in Europe, have a very specific uh, goal to achieve over the medium run. That goal is to contain uh, inflationary, inflationary pressures, uh, even if uh, sometimes uh, their policies may be uh, in conflict uh, with the long-run goals of growth of a given country. So this is exactly what is happening right now. Uh, we have experienced a supply shock, several supply shocks mm -hmm. over the past few years. Mm -hmm. The Fed has been called to act upon this supply shock. And the only way to act uh, properly, uh, this has been seen uh, several times in the, in the past. I'm talking about the 70s, for example, with the supply shocks due to the uh, oil crisis, mm -hmm. for example. Uh, the only way to act in this case from the Fed point of view or for the central bank point of view is to increase interest rates mm -hmm. uh, to counteract those inflationary pressures. Now, the problem with all this is that if you keep increasing interest rates, uh, you may get to the point that the Fed, the central bank, might induce a recession, which is also something that we're talking about uh, mm -hmm. these days. Mm -hmm. Are we entering a recessionary period or not? Maybe are we already in a recession. Uh, there are some indicators that seem to suggest that. Some indicators seem, that, seem to suggest that we are not there yet, mm -hmm. but this is a risk. Uh, and the Fed or central banks around the world uh, are aware of this risk, but it's in their mission. They have to fight inflation. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about cryptocurrency. You spent the last five years researching it. Uh, it's a topic that a lot of people don't understand very well. What can you tell us about cryptocurrency? Well, the first thing that I can tell about cryptocurrency is don't buy them, don't invest them. <laughs> uh, that's for sure. Uh, it's a very particular... This brought to you by crypto.com. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's a very particular uh, market. Uh, the initial idea of cryptocurrency... Uh, it is due to some uh, anonymous guy, uh, nobody knows uh, his real identity. Uh, this person uh, developed uh, the original idea behind Bitcoin. And Bitcoin was mm -hmm. the first cryptocurrency which was launched, mm -hmm. uh, created in 2008 and officially launched in the market at the beginning of 2009. Yeah. Uh, and after that, uh, thousands of other cryptocurrencies have joined the markets. Was and it a response to that economic crisis then? Uh, no, it... Maybe, actually, um, if you, very broadly, mm -hmm. probably, uh, the idea behind cryptocurrency is not uh, only 13 years old. It goes back to at least 30 years ago, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't want to say if it, 
it was really a response to the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was just a coincidence mm-hmm. that it was launched in 2009, uh, Bitcoin. Uh, it is true, however, that one of the initial intentions of the creators of Bitcoin and all this big cryptocurrency community around the world, uh, the initial idea was to replace the current uh, financial and monetary system, right. uh, trying to create uh, a different way uh, to exchange uh, mm-hmm. uh, and pay for goods and services. Right. So this was the original idea. Uh, from that point of view, I must say, uh, cryptocurrencies have not been very uh, successful. Uh, a lot of people believe that uh, they should be used a common currency, a legal tender. Uh, and some countries, uh, like El Salvador, for example, mm-hmm. uh, have tried to adopt mm-hmm. uh, Bitcoin as uh, uh, their currency, as legal yeah. tender. Uh, there is a problem with that, uh, because one of the main functions of any currency, uh, any kind of money, uh, is to be able to store value over time. And unfortunately, uh, cryptocurrencies are not able to do that. Not now, anyway. Uh, what prevents them? Well, they are a very uh, young, uh, relatively new asset. Uh, so to some extent, this is expected. Uh, at the beginning of their uh, life, in the first stages of their lives, any assets are usually subject uh, to high periods of volatility. Mm. which is exactly what we are seeing uh, in cryptocurrency markets, uh, at least in the last five or six years. Um, The volumes, uh, that is, how much of these cryptocurrencies uh, is traded in the global markets, uh, is still relatively, uh, are still relatively low. And these low volumes make a contribution to the high variability that we see in their prices. Uh, The other problem with cryptocurrencies uh, and the fact that we are seeing so much variability in these markets is that most cryptocurrencies, high quantities of cryptocurrencies are detained in their portfolios by only uh, a relatively low number of people. Uh, So whatever we see, the big swings in the price levels that we see for Bitcoin or similar cryptocurrencies, uh, most of the times these swings are due to the movements in these markets uh, that are taken, that are uh, performed by this uh, uh, small amount of investors. Um, so when it comes to being a store of value, I would say that in the last 13 years, for 14 years, since introduction of Bitcoin, cryptocurrency have failed uh, at doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they cannot be reliably used uh, uh, to keep and maintain uh, the value of your savings, for example. The thing that would scare me is that I would forget my password. And there we go, my life savings. I mean, I forget my passwords all the time. How do you deal with that? Well, uh, <laughs> I see your point, Marilyn. Um, however, this is actually one of the, in my view at least, one of the least controversial aspects of uh, holding cryptocurrencies in your portfolio. Uh, of course, anything can happen. Uh, uh, nothing is 100% safe uh, in the world. Uh, but it is probably true that it is much harder uh, to enter for anybody illegally uh, your digital wallet uh, Mm -hmm. if you store your password uh, correctly. So as long as you know them, uh, there is a reasonable assumption that can be made that you're going to be fine. Uh, Your cryptocurrencies will not disappear from your digital wallet. But again, anything is possible in life and in this world, so you must be careful. Uh, But that technology, the technology behind cryptocurrencies, is designed uh, to be extremely safe. Uh, so I wouldn't be too worried about that. Uh, that's not the aspect that uh, is most controversial about cryptocurrencies, as far as I can tell. 
You mentioned um, El Salvador as one of the countries who's you know experimenting with cryptocurrency, but you also described it as very volatile and not you know holding value very well over time. What are some of the strategies that a government like El Salvador is is kind of banking on? Why why are they experimenting with with something as volatile as cryptocurrency? If you ask me, I have no idea. <laughs> uh, this was a really huge bet uh, mm -hmm. that they made. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been only one year, mm -hmm. uh, so if you really want to be completely objective, I would say that it's still early to say anything bad or good mm -hmm. about this experiment, uh, but uh, um, it's very interesting uh, to see a country, even if it's a small country, mm -hmm. uh, to experiment in such a way with uh, something that is not even a currency. Right. Uh, I consider cryptocurrencies as uh, assets, uh, something that if you're uh, not risk averse, uh, you can invest in. Mm -hmm. uh, but currency, really, uh, that's not what it is. Uh, so it's a huge bet that I believe uh, the government in El Salvador uh, has made, mm -hmm. uh, possibly risking some of the welfare of their citizens. Uh, I'm not very optimistic about how things are going to go uh, from this point of view for that country. The most recent Super Bowl was filled with commercials for cryptocurrencies. Uh, and I think that the average person may have a fear of missing out. You know, they hear that and they go, oh, you know, what should I be doing? Should the average person be investing in crypto? I don't believe so. Uh, for the reasons that I mentioned before, uh, the wild price fluctuations that we see uh, in cryptocurrency markets, uh, most of them are demand driven. Uh, and they don't depend on the moods or the investment decisions of small investors. They depend, uh, for large part, uh, on uh, the investment decision of a few large cryptocurrency investors that are there uh, somewhere in the world. Uh, so if you're risk uh, averse, probably investing in cryptocurrencies is not a good idea. Uh, you will be subject uh, to huge uh, variabilities in your portfolio. Uh, if you have some appetite for risk, fine, uh, let's go for it. Uh, my personal suggestion is that uh, you should always keep uh, your exposure to cryptocurrencies very limited in your portfolio. Uh, and the other reason is because if you think about that for a second, uh, there is nothing that justifies the price level of cryptocurrencies. Uh, cryptocurrencies are digital assets. Uh, they are completely material. Uh, they are not backed by any kind of real productive economic activity. Uh, they have the value they have, they have the price they have, just because some people believe that that should be the price and they push for higher prices over time. Uh, if those people stop believing uh, that the price should be so high, the market will collapse. Uh, and there is nothing that can support those price levels in the long run. That's why I believe no uh, sane investor should ever try to buy cryptocurrencies and detain them for so long in their portfolio. That's a good transition for your next question, Marilyn. Absolutely, because <laughs> you told me about once about a personal experiment that you tried with crypto. Can you tell us about that? It was a very uh, small experiment, uh, just for fun. At the beginning of my research uh, on cryptocurrencies five years ago, I decided to buy $100 uh, of uh, cryptocurrencies. Uh, one specific cryptocurrency. I was reading some blogs, some people that were they were excited about these new cryptocurrencies called XYO. Probably never heard of it. So, okay, let's put $100 in this XYO thing. Uh, 
after a few months, uh, those $100 became $5,000. $100 to $5,000? And I should have uh, cashed it out. But I didn't. I wanted to see how far this can go. Uh, and I checked this morning before coming here, those 5000 became $5. So <laughs> after five years, my $100 investment in cryptocurrency is worth $5. So it's a lot like Vegas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Might have been different had you chosen a different cryptocurrency. Uh, well, uh, given the current market dynamics, I'm not confident that uh, buying uh, any kind of cryptocurrencies five years ago it would have made a, a huge difference. Uh, mm. In the last year, the markets uh, collapsed uh, in this specific uh, sector. Uh, Why? So, again, um, some major investors started selling, mm. uh, and this made a huge contribution to the lock, to the collapse that we have observed in the last twelve months. For example, Bitcoin uh, one and a half years ago, uh, it reached a peak of about $60,000, $62,000 for Bitcoin. My. Uh, right now it's 20000 So if you had bought one Bitcoin for $62,000 one year ago, now you would only have $20,000 in your wallet. <laughs> hmm. Yikes. I want to take you back to the classroom and ask you about your classes. What are some of the classes you teach and what are some of the favorite ones that you teach? Mm-hmm. So um, I started at Pomona College in 2009, and my department, when I joined, they asked me to teach uh, principles of microeconomics uh, and uh, econometrics. Um, and uh, when I came here, they asked me to design a slightly different course in econometrics than uh, what they uh, used to have, mm-hmm. uh, something a little bit more theoretical, mm-hmm. uh, something with a little bit more uh, mathematical and statistical content from a formal point of view, which is exactly what I did. Uh, so since then, I kept teaching this specific econometrics class more or less regularly mm-hmm. uh, for 14 years. Uh, and in the meantime, my portfolio of classes that I teach, uh, they now include uh, economic statistics, mm-hmm. uh, applied econometrics. And every now and then, when the department needs it, I lead a senior seminar in uh, empirical macroeconomics and finance. So these are the classes that I typically teach here at Pomona College. I also teach at CGU. Uh, mm-hmm. It's been eight years. Okay. I teach for their PhD program, and mm-hmm. I teach uh, PhD statistics and PhD time series econometrics. How was it teaching right after that time? When you started, it was still an interesting time in the economic crisis. How was how was that starting a new a new job and teaching something that you could probably use headlines almost? Well, um, it was a great experience. Um, after 14 years almost in this place, I can still say that coming to Pomona College was probably the best decision I've ever made in my life. Uh, but you're right. Uh, it was an interesting time when I was looking for jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was in the middle of the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were no jobs. Mm-hmm. Plus, in my case, uh, I was, and I'm still, an international uh, person. So I started applying everywhere in the world, hoping for a job. Uh, knowing that if I couldn't find a job in the United States, I had to leave the country. Mm-hmm. So that uh, fear, that yeah. uh, danger was always o- always on me. It's a lot of pressure. Uh, a lot of pressure. Uh, until fortunately, uh, I feel very fortunate, I got a call from Pona College uh, and uh, I got an offer from them. After coming to campus here, it was February 2009, uh, I gave my presentation about my research, I talked with the faculty, and a few weeks later, they get, got back to me 
uh, and they asked me if I uh, wanted to join them. And I was uh, super excited. A little warmer than Johns Hopkins. Very warm. <laughs> uh, a little anecdote. I was going, looking for jobs, back and forth between the East Coast and the West Coast back then. Uh, and again, I was a, a poor graduate student. Uh, I had bought my suit uh, to go around giving job uh, yeah. talks and interviews. And it was a winter suit. Uh, because in Baltimore, it's extremely cold. Yeah. And then when I came here, there were 90 degrees at the beginning of February. Ooh. I was sweating so much <laughs> doing my job. <laughs> I still remember those minutes. Oh, and, uh, no. But it went well. So, <laughs> You know, we need to wrap up pretty soon, but I can't resist asking you another question or two. What do you think is the most important under-the-radar thing that's happening in the world economy today? Well, inflation uh, is the thing that we really need to fight right now. Uh, and again, uh, unfortunately, we must be aware of the fact that uh, fighting inflation at this time, because of the nature of the shocks that we've experienced the last three years, may come with a huge cost, the cost of a recession. Uh, but uh, the problem is that uh, the levels of inflation that we have been experiencing in the United States, but also in Europe uh, in the last few months, are, uh, I don't want to say unprecedented, mm -hmm. uh, but we have to go back to the beginning of the 80s uh, to see something uh, like this. So this is worrisome. This is something that uh, we cannot just ignore. Uh, and uh, my personal opinion is that it's unfortunately uh, an unavoidable thing uh, that we have to keep in mind. To fight inflation, uh, we might fall in a recession. Uh, it's not a given, uh, but it's very likely. Is there anything that gives you cause for optimism? <laughs> Not really right now, uh, given what is happening in Europe, uh, mm. to be completely honest. Mm -hmm. uh, besides the economic aspects of all this, the war in Europe is what concerns me the most mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the problem is that it can deteriorate. Uh, we don't know uh, by what extent, though. Mm -hmm. hmm. That's my main concern. Yeah. On that note, we're going to wrap this up. Our thanks to Pierangelo de Pache, Chair and Professor of Economics, for an interesting and insightful conversation about economics and cryptocurrency. And to everyone listening, thanks for joining us on SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Till next time. <laughs>